Welcome to the Scholarly Soup podcast, brought to you by the University of Queensland Library. In this podcast series, we are going to meet with amazing women who found their success in academic and professional roles at the University of Queensland. They are resilient, smart, proactive, and more importantly, they are now working together to implement systemic changes that could make your career progression that little bit easier. If success breeds success, then listen to their stories and learn from the best. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Sally Shrapnel, a senior lecturer at the School of Mathematics and Physics at the University of Queensland. Sally is an interdisciplinary scientist working at the interface of causality and machine learning. She currently leads the artificial intelligence arm of the big COVID-19 project that looks at global ICU patients' data. She has studied biomedical science, medicine, surgery, medical engineering, and has been a registered and practicing medical practitioner for 20 years before she joined academia. What an amazing career turn. Dr. Sally Shapnell, good afternoon and welcome. Hi, Elena. Sally, you describe yourself as quantum research scientist, data scientist, philosopher, and medical practitioner. And I did find that you have been registered and practicing medical practitioner for over 20 years. When have you decided to change career path and why? That's a great question. There were lots of things that came into that decision, but I'd kind of always been interested in maths and physics. I loved it at school. And I started off here at UQ actually in maths and physics. I did it for a year and then I thought, oh, I can't imagine myself sitting in some radio telescope somewhere. I was interested in um, astronomy at the time and I thought that would be quite an isolated job and I liked people. And uh, a couple of my friends were doing medicine. I thought, oh, maybe that's a better career for me. So, you know, back when you're 17, 18, you really don't have a clue about what you want to do. So I swapped over to medicine and I finished my med degree. I worked for a year as a doctor and I ran into someone who was doing a a degree in engineering, bioengineering in medicine. So it was called physics and engineering in medicine at Imperial College. And it just sounded like a really exciting, interesting thing to do. So I went to London and did that degree. And then at the end of that, I had to kind of decide, do I go back to clinical medicine and do a specialty and train or, or do I go into academia and become a, a physicist and an academic researcher? And at that point in my life, I was, I guess I was just more inclined to finish the medical pathway. So I went back to Australia and I trained as a rural GP and I worked as a general practitioner for about 15 years and I loved it, but I always kind of had this half an eye on what was going on in science And then I had some children and when my children were in primary school, I felt like I had a bit more space. You know, once the kids were at school, I'd been working part-time as a GP, we'd moved back to a city and I was actually interested in the nature of scientific explanation. I was thinking I sit here in my work every day explaining things to patients and sometimes the science around it's really difficult to trace that pathway through science. So I actually came back to UQ and I enrolled in a a degree in philosophy, (laughs) looking at the philosophy of scientific explanation. And through that, I kind of noticed that most of the theories in philosophy, you know, they'd say this is the way scientific explanation works. And then there'd be this little caveat or a footnote somewhere saying, unless you think about quantum mechanics, 
quantum mechanics is really weird and mysterious and all the rules go out the window. And I just became really fascinated with this fact. So I I then, and I think I just realized that I was spending more time reading about quantum mechanics and trying to understand that than I was thinking about the latest asthma protocols or what have you. So I then approached someone at UQ who was a lecturer here and said, like, I'm really interested in doing a master's degree to actually understand a bit more about quantum theory and the philosophy of, of what's real and what's not that, you know, quantum theory tells us. Quantum mechanics is, you know, about our most fundamental physical theory. And he said, oh, why don't you do a PhD? And I was like, I'm 42, <laughs> you know, like how old can you start this? And he was like, well, how old will you be in three and a half years if you do it? And how old will you be in three and a half years if you don't do it? Which is very good advice because I thought, well, yeah, I could be in three and a half years time. I could say, yeah, I've done a PhD in quantum physics. So I enrolled in the PhD program and I was doing it part-time and doing part-time medicine, but it just became obvious through the course of the PhD. It was what I loved. It was so fascinating and engaging and interesting And, you know, I'd done GP for like 20 years, so I did less and less GP and more and more academia. And then when I got a postdoc position, I basically went, okay, I'm going to ramp, you know, I'm going to keep my medical registration, the minimum clinical work I need to do, and just go full-time into research. That's amazing. (laughs) What an amazing story. (laughs) (laughs) A medical practitioner, take now into academic world (laughs) and quantum physicist, as a quantum physicist. Sally... You are now interdisciplinary scientists working at the interface of causality and machine learning. So for me, actually, artificial intelligence is equally as exciting as it is actually scary. So we already witness robots performing operations on the patients. Um, And in 2018, I know there was a cafe opened in Tokyo uh, which was staffed by robot waiters controlled remotely by paralyzed people. So here in the library, we actually planning to deploy a robot to answer questions. Okay. Uh, so it will be just roaming around and, you know, giving directional answers and so on. So are machines going to take over the world? What's the application of your research? That's what I'm wondering. <laughs> are robots going to take over the world? I hope not. I think that, you know, it's a, it's a really important question and the engagement of community generally in the development of this technology is going to be crucial. And we're lucky there's a, an initiative that, UQ's involved in the Queensland AI Hub, which has been put together through Queensland Government. And one of their key initiatives is actually to try and bring other members of the community, not just people who know the technical side of machine learning and AI, so that can be an open discussion so that we can develop this technology to make sure that it does the, you know, the most good for, for society in the most broad sense. So I don't think machines are going to take over the world because I think human beings are aware of the fact that we need to try and align this technological development with our broader aims. In terms of the research that I do, so I kind of have two main areas to my research. One is I'm very interested in the very fundamental aspects of learning and machine learning. So what can we learn given the laws of the universe? So that's kind of asking things like, If we believe that quantum mechanics and general relativity are the most fundamental theories, are there some limits on what we can learn about the world? Might it be actually impossible for us to be able to know exactly how the planet's going to change in terms of global warming? Or might it be possible if we use, you know, special resources like quantum computers and things like that? 
So one part of my research is very fundamental. It's very theoretical. Mostly what I do is theory. There's a little bit of applied in that space and hopefully in the next five or ten years there'll be a lot more applied. Um, But the other side of my research is medical and health-related machine learning and artificial intelligence. So I have some projects where I work with Queensland Health um, and also a big group out of the UK, out of Oxford, working on COVID data. So looking at trying to extract information from data that's collected just in routine clinical use. So as you know now, when you go to the hospital, all your data is digitised. So there's a lot of information about public health now in electronic medical records And part of my research is looking at how we can extract that information and learn from it in a meaningful way that we can then put back into clinical workflows so that we can help patients at their bedside. So two very different kind of approaches. It's amazing. Yeah, it (laughs) sounds very, very interesting. Oh, that's great. So Sally, you mentioned that you actually started your PhD as a mature student. Was it a rocky road or was it a smooth road for you? And if if there were difficulties, like how did you overcome them? That's funny. I don't think I've ever come across any PhD student who would say it was completely smooth. PhDs are tough. You know, a PhD is a is a big commitment. A lot of the time you really got to push it through yourself. You know, there's there is that sense that you're really driving your own PhD. And there certainly were times for me it was a pretty challenging topic. I was doing quantum theory, you know, without having done a physics degree. So there was a very very steep learning curve and I for me I'm lucky I really love learning new things, so that was good. But I'd say probably one of the hardest things was learning to balance the time and recognising that you can say no to opportunities. When you're a young academic, people will present you with opportunities that you feel like you just can't pass up. And what can often happen is you can get overloaded very early on. So I guess because I had kids at home, you know, I was still needing to have those that role and responsibility. It meant that I could put some boundaries around that So there were points in my PhD where I think I was probably working too hard and not effectively, but I kind of learned along the way. I had good people. I had a great advisory team. I worked in the, well, I was working across two disciplines, philosophy and physics at the time. And the physics department particularly is really wonderful place to work. So I was very fortunate in that sense. So you have published a number of papers. I was just wondering if you have ever gone through the rejection process and how did you take it? Can you give any advice? Oh, absolutely. Everyone's papers get rejected at some point. Like that's just part of being an academic. And part Um, of the process, isn't it? Rejection is part of the process. I think it's really interesting depending on the discipline because I've actually published in like a number of different disciplines and the actual culture and practices are very different in the different disciplines. You can... You know, I think the hardest thing is if you get a rejection where you know the referee didn't actually read the paper properly or, you know, you get a rejection that you feel is really unfair. And I have been a co-author on a paper relatively recently where the paper was rejected and, you know, my normal approach would be, okay, next journal. But the lead author on that particular paper went, no, that that response is you know, not, I don't think that's justified. I think we've got an argument here. And that was two referees had said no. And so they, we wrote a letter saying, you know, we, we think you've misunderstood this and it went back and it went through the process again. And after a few iterations, it actually got published. And that opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, if you really feel you've got a good piece of work and you can justify it, sometimes it is worth raising the question about whether the referees have perhaps misunderstood you. I think during your PhD it can be difficult because typically 
you've got one really big paper that you're really excited about, you've put your heart and soul into it. And so that first rejection might be really painful. And I think you just have to recognise it's never personal. Sometimes, you know, there is an element of luck. You can be unlucky and get a referee that happens to disagree with that, you know, particular approach. There are many, many, many journals out there. There's no shame in having a paper rejected and going, you know, applying to another journal following that. I think the other thing is that depending again on the discipline you're in, you know, one of the things I love in the machine learning literature, they have these open this open review system that's open and iterative and you can see the papers get better through the review paper review process. So often you'll have a f- the few the first few reviewers say no we reject this for these reasons. And then the authors will refine the paper, improve it, come back and have another go. And you just see the paper improving. It's like the way science should be done. It's a very collaborative kind of approach. So I'd love all disciplines to move to that open review process, but, you know, in an ideal world. (laughs) And I heard that actually the open peer review also makes it a little bit more collaborative in the way way reviewers actually even communicate what they need to communicate because, you know, their name is attached to it. Absolutely. And it's also open to the whole research community. Yeah. So uh, potentially it's a little bit less subjective in that sense, you know. Yeah. A very interesting question, I think, and maybe a little bit provocative. Do you think it is harder for women in academia, especially like in in science discipline because of the under-representation of women? I have no doubt that it's much harder. I think there are many different ways that it's difficult. One of the kind of very subtle ways is the fact that um, there just are a lot of unconscious biases and cognitive biases that we bring to the workplace and you see that people look for people like them to support and it's one of the things, I mean, I'm I'm very fortunate. I would say the physics department at, at UQ is really amazing. It's been an incredible place to work and I, I did, you know, face some gender discrimination in my early career back at Imperial College and, you know, back in the 90s and then coming back as a mature academic into the physics department, which is full of blokes, I was ready for, you know, to be have to, <laughs> fight, to fight for my corner <laughs> and um, and I was really pleasantly surprised. They, they advocate for more women in their discipline. They're very aware of the biases and they're trying to address them. There's some terrific mentors in that school. Um, I have seen other areas in the university where it's not the case. And I would say one of the things that I still see even in physics is that thing of people do look, um, that just automatically look to people like them. So I've been, you know, where people have said, oh, he'd be a great hire. He's just like the guy that just retired. You know, he's just like he was 20 years ago. He, you know, he does the same kind of research. And and I go, okay, you've just ruled out half the population in that yeah. statement, that woman who's applying for the job is never going to look like that old professor that's just left. She's never going to behave like him or, you know, that's probably not a good criteria when you're filling a job <laughs> position. So, yeah, I mean, I would say the difficulties for women are the lack of mentorship available um, because there aren't so many women in level D, level E positions across the university landscape. But, you know, I think there's a really good groundswell of support to make change at the moment, which I think is a good thing. I really left academia. One of the reasons why I left, I went back to clinical medicine rather than continuing on after my degree at Imperial College was partly there were no role models that I could see, female role models that had had families 
and had been able to do that balancing act. So it seemed to me like you had to choose. You're either going to be an academic or have a family. That that wasn't something you could combine. And I think mm. that's not the case anymore. Oh, thank you. That's a really interesting perspective. Mm. So the, you, you partially answered my next question, but mm. I was just wondering, have you had a mentor that would, you know, um, a male person who was your mentor who yeah, actually definitely. gave you a different perspective on things? And Yeah, definitely. I've, there's probably been a couple of male mentors that have been very influential. Um, Jared Milburn, so he's a professor, he's an emeritus professor now who's been with the physics department for many years. He's a very well-respected, internationally well-respected quantum physicist and he was a terrific role model. He was always professional. He always spoke to me like a peer who had something interesting to say. I never felt that I was less worthy of being in a room, you know, because of my level in academia or because of my gender or because of my age or those things just didn't seem to matter. If I was keen and interested on the work, then he was happy to support that. And Andrew White, who's the director of EQUIS, um, which is the ARC Centre for Engineered Quantum Systems, who I work with, he's been very instrumental in promoting women within that particular institution. They have a Deborah Jin Fellowship that they initiated, which is for women only. I think there's a, the I was on the Diversity and Equity Committee for EQUIS and that was um, very forward thinking and actually looking at making change rather than just kind of symbolic gestures all the time. So those two have been very influential. And also Matt Davis, who's the head of physics, um, he's a professor as well. I think he has a very good outlook on, on you know, they, they all recognise the fact that physics is missing out because women aren't staying on and they all want to see that change. So, you know, I've been very lucky, I guess. Yeah, and it's such a positive change, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I actually, I must say, I came to Australia on a scholarship from UNESCO and that was also women in engineering education. So that was my luck. Fantastic. (laughs) So I'm glad that there was, you know, that initiative and it gave me an opportunity to become part of, you know, of the university and part of the academia. That's right. So um, I have a little quote here. So according to Immanuel Kant, uh, science is organised knowledge and wisdom is organised life. And so I was going to ask if you are able to actually disconnect from the daily job, I'm doing the quotation marks, um, and how do you balance life and work? Oh, what a great question. It's funny because coming from medicine, so when I was a GP, I used to feel a bit frustrated or, you know, like you'd get some result in at nine o'clock at night and you'd have to action it, you know, people get sick all the time. And I resented the fact that work encroached on my home life a bit. Um, But the problem is I love the research that I do. And so I find the disciplines the other way around. I actually have to force myself to stop doing work on the weekends because I just think, oh, just read that paper. You know, there's this great paper that's come out or this great. I just want to find out. Burnout is a huge risk in academia. And I, I, you know, I have had to learn that just because I've got three hours where I haven't got something planned on the weekend, that doesn't mean that I should do work-related things because you do just start to spin your wheels a bit. So I just had to be more disciplined about actually allocating time to force myself to do something completely different, you know, read a novel, that kind of stuff. I spend a lot of time with my kids. That's a very natural way of having downtime. But I think it is important for your research capacity and creativity to force yourself to have those breaks. Um, but, yeah, it took me a while to learn that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really good advice, though. Thank you for mm. sharing. Do you have mantra that, you know, something that 
inspires you and motivates you? So what what is your why? <laughs> I don't have a mantra. I think for me, if I'm, you know, sometimes you're just, you know, drudging through some admin task and kind of feeling a bit like, oh, okay, this job, you know, or some aspect of the job feels a bit like it's it's hard work. And I just think about um, the research questions that I'm getting to answer. I'm working on quantum robots and machine learning and, you know, it's like my childhood dream from reading science fiction to be able to work on this and be paid and and speak to lots of really creative, intelligent people as part of my day job. It feels like a great privilege. So I think the thing for me is I think those big questions, you know, the really big questions like are there limits to what we can learn, that kind of big question, that that's what keeps me going. And uh, the next question was uh, exactly, do you dream big? <laughs> and it seems like you actually don't only dream big, you actually get to do what you like. Yeah, that's right. I think the foundational stuff for me is the real pleasure in the job. I I do a lot of applied machine learning in, in the health sphere and that's very rewarding for a different reason. It's kind of practical. But the thing I really love and gives me joy is that really foundational stuff, the really thinking big. So, yeah, that would be the answer to that. <laughs> would that be your legacy as well? You want it to be your legacy? Um, um, I guess I've not really thought about that, to be honest. I think you can get caught up with thinking about too much about what other people think about you or what you will leave behind. Or I think you're better to stay focused on what brings you joy and what you want to achieve for yourself. And for me, it's understanding and understanding the universe and the way things work. I try not to think too much about that, about the legacy side of things. Okay. <laughs> you live in the now. Absolutely. Not in the future. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, um, Sally, if you were to start your career again, would you have done anything differently? That's a great question. Uh, probably not. I do wonder if I'd gone, you know, if I hadn't done medicine and gone straight into physics. I mean, I do love the job I'm doing now. But um, being a medical doctor gave me a lot of insight into the way human beings are and, and it was a real privileged kind of position to be in to to be able to help people through illness and things like that for so many years so I wouldn't say I regret it but I'm kind of I would be curious to know where I'd be now if I'd started this second pathway when I was much younger in terms of any other regrets I don't think so you know I look back and think should I have stood up for myself as a younger woman like now I'm older I'm just inclined I just call everything if someone's saying something inappropriate whatever I'll just call it out and I feel I've got less to lose. When I was a younger woman, I probably kept my mouth shut more often because I was frightened of repercussions, etc. But when I look back, when you're in those more, though, that kind of vulnerable stage of life, that's maybe, you know, that's maybe a sensible thing to do. So it's a bit hard to say. Thank you very much. No yeah, it's been, it's been a really good conversation. I really appreciate your time and um, we hope to see you again soon. Ah, thank you very much. That's it for this episode of Women Finding Success. The podcast series was initiated by the Sage Athena Swan team at the University of Queensland. Thanks to Workplace Diversity and Inclusion team and Gender Steering Committee for their support and coordination. The series is produced by Dr. Elena Danilova with technical production by John Anderson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe or write a review on the platform you get your podcast from. Thank you for listening.